I think we're going to get started. We are 15 minutes um, late. I'm delighted you're here. I think people are probably grabbing some coffee and will be wandering in. My name is Pamela Hardigan, and I'm the director of the Skull Center here at the business school. Um, I suppose the reason why I was asked to moderate this session is because I've spent half of my career in the field of public health, and um, then most of my career, including the last 15 years, identifying some of the most interesting and innovative models for social change using market-based principles to actually affect transformational change, what we call entrepreneurship in the public interest. And uh, so today we are going to be looking at how that kind of entrepreneurship actually is beginning to flourish um, in the area of medical innovation in a whole wide array of different um, areas relevant to um, access to health and to top technologies. And so the people on the panel today are going to be giving you their insights in terms of the innovative solutions they're coming up with, how they're uh, actually disseminating those, and the impact that they're um, having. Now, we're scheduled uh, to stop at 11. We are starting about 15 minutes later. So what I may have to do, because I have, um, I have a flight out of Heathrow and I have to leave exactly at 11, is to ask my friend Tulsi Ravala to continue to moderate the Q&A if we go over 11 o'clock. So with that, I want to introduce the people on the panel. And over here to far right is Yuk Tanis. Am I saying it correctly? Yup. 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 Okay. Um, uh, the head of the Health Launchpad at the Young Foundation Investment Fund that supports new ventures that are focused on improving health and quality of life. And then Deborah um, is the founder of Think Public. A social innovation and design agency that's developed a range of tools and methods uh, to enable social innovation and service improvements in the public health and third sectors here in the UK. Is that correct? You're not working internationally. And then um, David has some really cool glasses that he's going to show us. Yeah, I'll show and Exactly. He's the, um, he helps set up the Center for Vision in the Developing World to address the dearth of uh, adaptive eyewear among the poor. And then my dear friend, Andrea Coleman, who I've known for quite some time, uh, co-founder and CEO of Writers for Health, which is an internationally renowned um, social venture that basically focuses on distribution. One thing is to get the technology and the drugs and diagnostics into uh, countries. The other is how do you distribute them to the rural poor. And uh, it's, she's, they have devised a very... Um, uh, simple and yet fascinating way of doing that. So welcome to all of you. And what I think what I'll do is just, um, and please, it's not meant to be a, a, a dog and pony show. It really should be a much more um, uh, interactive. And if anybody has any questions, just raise your hand as, as we're talking, uh, sort of living room conversation. Um, if we could just start with each one of you and tell us exactly what is it that your organization does and what is innovative about what, what, what you do. And I think I'll start with Deborah. Um, so what do we do? We work with the public sector and the third sector and um, the company's backgrounds in design and media. So we bring a lot of um, design and media 
tools and techniques into healthcare environments where I guess quite a lot of the time we're looking at how do you improve services and how do you co-design the services with the people that use and deliver those services. So a lot of our approach is about actually how do you engage public in that and how do you pass ownership to the people that have the ideas for um, ideas for what needs to be improved and ideas actually for how we can potentially improve them. Um, and so our role as a company is very much to facilitate that process and to enable the people with those ideas to, I guess, feel that they can be creative and then to support them to create prototypes and to test their ideas live in those situations, in those environments, um, with patients, with staff. To, um, to create change. And so an example of our work would be, um, we've worked with the NHS Institute for Innovation and Improvement here in the UK to look at how we could bring design methodologies to healthcare environment. And we worked with them to develop an approach called the experience-based design approach. And it's very much around how do you capture patient and staff experience and map that experience throughout the journey of the patient and throughout the service, and then identify key touch points in that service where maybe there's an emotional kind of low point for the patient or there's a challenge within that service, and identifying those points to then think, okay, how can we innovate and how can we improve those points through getting people to work together through like a co-design approach, which is patients and staff carers all working together to problem solve and come up with ideas. And so once they've come up with those ideas, it's very much supporting them through that process of testing. Um, and I guess like we could look at that process in lots of different ways, because I guess now looking at the economy, it could be actually cutting down certain parts of the services which actually aren't working for patients um, and making them more efficient. And so... I guess in, within health, that's our main kind of approach of how mm -hmm. we involve patients and staff. And I think that one of the elements that's really strong throughout that is the, um, the kind of role of storytelling um, and capturing patients' st uh, stories and staff stories um, on film. And that's a, such a powerful way in, to, in order to kind of, I guess, capture that story and share it with, share it with the mass, really. Um, and the emotions of those stories tend to be a real motivator to get staff, I guess, engaged in giving, going that extra mile, really, to, um, to put in extra time. Because I think all of this work that we do is actually asking people to do something on top of their day job quite mm -hmm. a lot of the time. So I think what we try to do within our work is to make it exciting, make it accessible, and make it fun for people so they feel that they personally are making a difference. How do you, just, just to, my experience with the health sector is even the language that we use, you know, the <coughs> patient, et cetera, is a very disempowering, a disempower, the patient is basically disempowered. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that one of the first places that you <coughs> begin to start there is actually in reshaping the mindset of the carer or the person who's delivering the service. Um, did, do you get into that at all? Yeah, so I guess, like, Looking at the language that's used within healthcare, it can be really complicated. Um, and then, I guess, then how we see lots of really bad examples, unfortunately, of how we're trying to involve patients but alienating them with the words. And so, a lot of what we try to do is look at, I guess, approaches from like the advertising industry and approaches from how actually, how can you make this how can you get someone to buy into this, really, and give mm. up their time to want to get involved um, and make it accessible? So understanding the kinds of groups of people you're trying to reach, you're trying to reach young people, if so, 
Are you going to do that via text? What kind of language are you going to mm-hmm. use? If you're going to tr- reach older people, um, what's the best way to do that? So it's really kind of understanding who you want to involve in that service improvement okay. and designing that process to engage them. You tell us a little bit of you. Job. 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 Okay. Got to get that in there. Just remind me. I will. <laughs> tell us about um, the Health Launchpad and in terms of what is innovative about what you're doing. Um, Health Launchpad is a, a fairly new team, about two and a half years old, and, and we work under the, the rather grand title of trying to help transform healthcare uh, uh, to meet the demands of the 21st century. Um, we're not alone in doing that, but we believe we have uh, a few techniques and methodologies that, um, that fill a niche or a gap that very few other people occupy. I think it's important to briefly pause on why that is so important and why the 21st century uh, label is, is essential there. Much of the systems in which we operate, much of the technology, knowledge, uh, professional uh, development um, comes from the 19th and 20th century when the needs uh, were very, very different. There was a need for acute uh, disease management. People died at the age of 28 or 35 of acute diseases. Uh, and therefore the institutions, technology, knowledge uh, and organisational structure was developed to meet those demands. Uh, come the 21st century, those demands are significantly different. The old issues are still there, but in a way they are, if I simplify things a little bit, they're by and large taken care of. Um, what we're facing now, uh, and there was a session this morning which touched on a few of those points, uh, are demographic changes, an ageing population leading to chronic and long-term conditions, uh, a reduced workforce uh, to try and meet those demands, rising expectations, both because we can do much more, we know how to treat things, but also because people know more, there's access to information, which means that uh, the population is uh, demanding or wanting healthcare because they know it's available. And then there's financial constraint, not just because of the economic crisis, but, but also because of the, uh, the fact that capacity simply cannot grow in line with that demand and that capability. So a real shift required from acute healthcare via public health and health information to much more self-directed health, and that is, I think, what we'll... Uh, sort of uh, determine the 21st century um, um, healthcare delivery. Innovation, a key element of that, that underpins what we do, um, in the knowledge that you can make um, um, incremental change and efficiency gains at a rate uh, which would give you a sort of a saving of between 5 and 8%, depending on how you look at that. But what's required is step change in the order of 20 or 30 or 40%, and innovation is the only way in which you can unlock that. Investing in innovative ideas um, fairly small amounts at an early stage when you know very little and you may risk losing all that investment, uh, but larger amounts once you learn more. Um, and then key for us, not just technology. We had a very impressive session earlier this morning uh, which focused largely on technology, which clearly has a big role to play. But one of the key, I don't know what all of you were in that session, but uh, one of the key elements that uh, Professor Bell said was that it was a fantastic institute in North America, which, of which he's on the board, uh, which was uh, great, good people, good kits, good uh, facilities. The key element for him was, though, they were allowed to work in a different way. And for us, that is very essential to how we might uh, change things. So how do we support um, innovation in that field? Uh, we support the creation of new innovative services rather than technology. Um, and uh, we do that using a venturing approach. We make investment both financially and with hands-on support in new startup companies, startup enterprises, backing either entrepreneurs with a fantastic idea which they would like to make relevant in a sector that they've not before now operated on in, or backing uh, clinicians who have clearly great knowledge about what they would like to achieve but might not know how to do that in a venturing way, creating a new enterprise, social enterprise or for profit, doesn't really matter. 
Um, and we particularly back those at a very early startup phase. It's quite a bit of uh, support for um, um, innovative projects at, at a rate of up to 30 or 50,000 pounds. There is quite a bit of money to be found. There are bigger institutions that back projects or enterprises that have uh, a track record, have some delivery, and they're ready to put in half a million pounds plus. There is a real gap between that small early proof of concept development and bigger investment to create sustainability and scale for some of these ventures. Uh, and Health Launchpad operates in that, in that field. So we fund as well as give hands-on support. Uh, venturing, we believe, is an opportunity in the public sector uh, to try and create new spaces that aren't currently occupied by uh, professional organizations or organizational structures in which people can come together and say, let's make something new that at the moment doesn't disrupt anything, but obviously over time would have the potential of replacing some of the existing way of delivering services. Can you give us an example of one of the ventures that you're the most excited about? Um, yes, we've, we've got a, a portfolio of about seven or eight ventures at the moment. One example would be a company that we're creating or have created together with a primary care trust in Birmingham. It's called Healthy Incentives, and it's trying to uh, devise a, uh, an intervention based on incentivizing individuals to change their behavior. These are financial or material incentives in order to reach individuals who, up until now, have not yet responded to uh, very clear public health messages. You shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't lose weight. If you're pregnant, you shouldn't smoke in particular. Um, it's difficult for a public organization to start paying individuals to uh, change their behavior. There's quite a bit of research to be done on that. There's also a question as to whether a, a primary care trust, a healthcare organization, can really set up uh, a, a way of doing that efficiently. So we've jointly invested in a new venture. It tests the concept of whether those uh, uh, material rewards will indeed change the behavior, not just during the incentivization period, but also beyond, and how to deliver that. Crucially, how to set up an, an, a, a company that, that will be able to uh, increase their reach and sell those services mm -hmm. to others. Doesn't all the literature that shows that monetary incentives is negative uh, impact on changing behavior worry you? Uh, there is some literature. There's also very strong. We've got very uh, uh, good support from uh, Professor Theresa Marteau in this case, who has uh, set up the Centre for Incentives um, in, in Health uh, at King's College in London. Uh, there is indeed a lot to be answered. Currently, the methodology doesn't quite work. We already know, and this is why that concept development is important, that you can't just say, here's a bit of money and you'll change right. the behavior. It has to plug into a way of interacting with the individual, uh, with, yeah. the, with the patient in this case, differently. Right. So it's a partnership between uh, the clinician and uh, the person. It is some reminding via SMS messaging and uh, a, a, a stimulus throughout a, a period of time where you're encouraged to change that behavior. Mm -hmm. And for some, having some financial reward at the end of it may just get them across that threshold. Mm -hmm. This is not for everybody, but it's for that small group for whom the PCT otherwise would have to say, well, we've told them they haven't listened, no more we can do. Okay. So it's innovative, it's risky, it may or may not work. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for a mainstream public sector organization to engage in that. So putting this in a new neutral space where we experiment, mm -hmm. and you're right, we don't yet know whether sure. it will or won't work, yeah. uh, but at least we'll be able to find out in a way that is yeah. incubated and encapsulated. So now we've been focusing on the UK, and now we're going to go to other parts of the world. Andrea, can you tell us what is innovative, or what is not innovative about what you do? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting listening to Jochen uh, Deborah that... Um, uh, 
our, the part that Riders for Health does starts very much before the patient ever gets anywhere because in Africa uh, people can't get to the clinic, they can't get to the hospital unless they walk and it's a long way and it's hot and they may be pregnant, they may have two or three children with them. So um, this is a, a, what, what Barry Coleman, my uh, co-founder, and I are addressing is how you make logistics and transportation work in an, uh, in a, on a continent where there is no infrastructure for running and managing vehicles on a systematic basis. And um, Barry's innovation in this has been to ensure that there is, a, there is a, an appropriate infrastructure for running and managing vehicles, and by that I mean where there are no roads, no um, service stations, no gas stations, no stores to, for replacement parts, that all those issues of supply chain are, and, and running appropriate vehicles that can run where there are no roads, where there are narrow tracks that reach to at the end of which there are many large communities of people, uh, that there are people that are trained uh, to be technicians to run and manage vehicles, that they have technical training, and that they are able to access fuel because we make sure they can by some means that, you know, too detailed to go into uh, here now. But what that prevents is... Uh, people having to, women in labor being taken to hospital in wheelbarrows, children dying of malaria, where there's a vehicle, there may be a vehicle that's relatively new, broken down maybe 30 kilometers from that child. If you could get the ch to the child, you could save the child or take the child to hospital, but the vehicle's broken. And um, we've just done a, a little um, questionnaire to all our individual donors, people send money to us and, and so on. We've just done this questionnaire and one of the people replied, um, bloody good job you're doing, isn't it a tragedy that in the 21st century you have to be doing this? And it is, you know, the internal combustion engine was invented, you know, more than 100 years ago and you would think that somebody before Barry and me would have thought, why aren't these vehicles reaching these children and women in rural communities? What are we going to do? But anyway, we came along and we decided that's what we were going to do because we, we can. Now, the other part of uh, any social enterprise is about uh, the money. There's no point in deciding you're going to do something to change, to, 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 to come up with a solution for a, 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 a chronic problem in, in, in the developed world if you can't access the money. And we have come up with some innovative ways of accessing money. We put on events. Uh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous for an organization whose focus is Africa to have to put on events and, and so on. In the UK, this is around strangely enough, around motorcycle racing. We're able to provide things that people like. They pay us the money. We put the money into our organization. We take the money and, and focus it on enabling people in Africa in rural communities to access health care. But actually it ends up with, if you're doing any social enterprise, with having to do some rearranging of the... Um, money that's available in the world uh, to, to focus on what you think is important and actually that's in a way what social enterprise is about is how do you get the money available in the world to be focused on the thing you think is important and then to make the money work really really hard in, a, in, in order to, 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 to make that happen so that's what, that's what we do we also um, 
charge ministries of health for the use of the vehicle. We charge uh, a cost per kilometre to the ministries of health. That's adding up all the little tiny things that it takes to run a vehicle. That's training the health workers to ride motorcycles to, or vehicle drive vehicles to make sure that the replacement parts are there to cover the technical work that our technicians do. There are a million little items on that budget that add up and then you divide it by the number of vehicles and, you char- and the number of kilometres and you charge the Ministry of Health or the NGO you work for. So you have to have customers and in our case it's Ministries of Health and um, uh, NGOs that are health focused in Africa. And then the, the, the last thing I think uh, that is a big challenge for us is how do you make something that is practical and mundane in a sense um, discussed and, and high up on the agenda of people who are in medicine. How do you do that? Because actually they're very focused on developing drugs, on developing policy, on you know all sorts of really highly intellectual things. And here we come, you know, with our greasy hands and kind of very mundane, practical things, and say this is really important because if you don't do this. There's no point in doing what you do, actually, if, if you're working in Africa. So that's tough for us because, you know, medical people tend not to think of those very mundane things. They take it for granted, and they don't have the expertise to run and manage vehicles in that context. So that's, that's our, one of our major challenges, and um, our challenge over the, uh, over the next few years is to try and integrate the issue of transportation and, and in, in fact, a, sort of a, a leader of, of, of talking about mundane issues, the practical things that allow people to then deal with health care, the health of the people, which then goes on to what you're both doing, you know, the systems and, the, and making sure that there's behaviour change and so on. So we're a, a sort of very much before that. But that nevertheless, it is an intellectual challenge. I bet. But you just um, tell them about the interesting model you've developed with the Gambia, because I think that's quite fascinating, where you're actually um, leasing the vehicles. And mm. I think that the business models that they've devised are actually absolutely innovative. Um, in, in, in the Gambia, uh, a country of a, of a million and a half people, um, uh, Barry, who is the most patient man on, on earth has waited 13 years to uh, get, build a relationship and a, a, a good strong uh, relationship of trust between Riders for Health and, and the Ministry of Health in the Gambia and what we normally do is run the vehicles that the Ministry of Health have in their systems anyway, the ambulances, the outreach vehicles, the trekking vehicles and so on. And as a result, it's quite hard to do that because when we take them over, they might be in any condition, they may even not be working anymore. Uh, We hope always to be taking over new vehicles. But it's quite difficult because there are so few vehicles in the system that it's very tempting once we're running them and they're reaching, you know, even a million kilometres to take them out of the system and say we won't use them anymore. So for us, we budget, we can budget for a Ministry of Health over five years. What that vehicle will cost them over five years, they can build that into their budget but it's very difficult for us if they keep them in the system longer. Um, so we, 
Barry, figured that if we uh, withdrew, that were able to withdraw the vehicles at a certain point in time when they were starting to get expensive and starting to cost us money, that it would actually we'd have more control and things would be much much more uh, controllable for riders for health. Um, so we borrowed three and a half million dollars from the Skull Foundation for Social Enterprise in in California, and we asked the GT Bank, a Nigerian bank, if we could use that three and a half million dollars to underpin a loan from them of the same amount of money, buy all the vehicles, every single vehicle that every clinic and hospital needed in in the Gambia, and pay them back out of the cost per kilometre. And we did that, and we, we could have just used that skull loan, but we wanted to challenge ourselves and to figure out if you can work with a regular commercial bank, and particularly an African bank, because at the end, everything has to be African and owned by Africa and so on in, in, in our terms. So we borrowed the money from the GT Bank, and we, had, we tested this model on paper, and it was a you know, document about this thick. And it turns out that running it in practice, probably about half of it is right. <laughs> and, but it, it, was a, it was important to test it on paper, but all sorts of things have happened as a result. But the most important thing is, is that every man, woman and child in the Gambia, a million and a half people, has predictable, cost-effective access to health care. They can be taken to hospital when they, in ambulances when they need referral. They, can, they have outreach health care. They have all the things that we all take for granted in a very, very difficult uh, environment. So it's a very fascinating model, and I'm grateful, Pamela, to you for bringing that up. Because, yeah, it's all about the money in the end. <laughs> and the business. David. Are you going to show us the glasses? Oh, yeah, well, us? I will, will do, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> no, so. tell us, no, I'm kidding, I'm teasing you. Please, oh, tell I'm us sure. about the innovative... So I'm from the uh, Centre for Vision um, in the Developing World, and we're a research effort devoted to the problem of uncorrected refractive error, that is, um, visual impairment that can be corrected by, by glasses. And the global burden for this is, well, it's at least half a billion people, and that's probably a conservative estimate. And so we're, we're involved in researching this problem. In particular, we're, we're, our, our idea is, is, is to look at a, an alternative approach to how you provide that correction. Because the problem you have is there's a lack of eye care professionals as well as a lack of infrastructure. So the conventional approach by which you get glasses is your, your refraction is, is measured by some quite highly qualified professional. And then subsequently, a prescription is drawn up and, and a pair of glasses dispensed and that requires infrastructure, but crucially it requires the eye care professional. And In this country, you've got about one for every 7,000 people in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa. The ratios are more like one to a million, so you've got very little chance if you're just short-sighted of, of seeing an eye care professional. So, so, so what we have, and this is the first-generation device, um, is self-adjustable glasses um, as an approach. So these are glasses where you can change the power uh, yourself to, to see what you need. And I've just got caught in my pocket there. So. Well, we've just done the first pilot mm. test. It's hard to pull it out of your <laughs> Hard to put it out of your pocket. Well, the, 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 so, so let me explain how these, these work, because they're, they're, they're kind of funny looking. Um, so, so I'll talk about that as well. Um, so, so, so the idea is you put them on, and you, you, there's a sort of protocol, but basically you have them pre-folded somehow. You cover up one eye, and you just 
wind back until you can see clearly, looking at some point in the distance, then just do the same with the other eye. I like <laughs> Sorry? I like <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have a go. <laughs> and, um, and then the idea with these ones is you then seal them up, um, cut off these tubes and remove these adjusters, so you don't have these adjusters left on, oh, you, but you're left with... Yeah, so it's not... It's not, <laughs> not like, so, so there's not sort, a fashion sort, sort, sort of set ones. Well, they're, they're, still, they're still kind of Harry Potter. But, but let me, okay, I was going to save these for later, but just to make the point clear, this is the next generation device. Oh, okay. Okay, so, so um, this is still very much work in progress, um, uh, but, but not long, not, not, not far away. Um, so, so that's the, 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 the basic idea of these, and, and uh, well, let me start handing them around, so I almost fiddle away. Um, yes, so, so, so that's sort of, sort of, I suppose, one half of the innovation, and the, the second half is, is you've got to make sure that any intervention you do works. <laughs> yeah, they, they are fun. Um, Oh, come on, I'm going to show you something else that's fun then. Come on, right. <laughs> um, I've, I've got here, this, this, is, this is the, the basis of the, the new glasses, the new technology. The, these are test mouldings because the, the fancy mouldings we've got are still a work in progress, but this demonstrates the principle. So these are based on fluid-filled lenses. So there you pump fluid into a lens and that causes it to change shape, has an elastic membrane. And they've been very good for demonstrating that self-adjustable glasses can work in the sense that people can self-correct accurately. Um, so, so they are a valid deployment. You know, that's a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition, but it's certainly necessary that, that, that it can work. Uh, but the trouble is, is that they're, 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 obviously the aesthetic limitations you can see. Um, the other, the other um, these, they're, they're too, crucially, they're, they're too expensive to make. So, so what we're looking at now is, is another technology, and, and this is based on what's called an Alvarez lens. And this dates back um, to the 60s, in fact, but it's only sort of really now it's um, possible to make them very cheap. Um, and this is based on, on you have two lenses, which if you look through them individually are a complete mess. But when you put them together the right way around, so they sort of cancel each other out and then slide them over one over another, you have a variable power oh, lens. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. So this is an Alvarez lens. And I'll also I'll hand this down the other way so it's going around. So probably play with an Alvarez lens. And you will see with this, of course, it's possible to, uh, <coughs> you're not constrained, for example, for the, to the glasses being round, whereas, whereas with, with those glasses, the lenses have to be round, otherwise the you get horrible optical distortions. With these ones, the lenses can be you know, edged to any shape you like, and you saw in the prototypes there that they're more, much more traditional shape. Um, so that's the technology side. Uh, we also yeah, have to do a lot of research to establish this. And then, of course, the other side is deployment. And this is where it's still early days. Well, it's early days on technology, but also it's early days on, on the deployment. And so far, the deployment efforts have mainly been based around aid efforts because the, the cost, yeah. you know... How much does it cost to produce one? The, those okay. ones, yeah. um, the raw cost of them without any of the sort of overhead of cost at all, it's still about 13 or $14. Um, so, so the total cost comes at about $19 once you include some tooling costs and stuff. Way too much. It's, it's, it, as, as I say, you've got to be clear. These are only made in relatively small amount, about sort of two, 3000 a month. Um, the use of the, the first-generation device has been to you know, establish that self-adjustable glasses can work, you know, people can correct accurately, and to sort of you know, pilot various field tests and that sort of thing. But if, if this is to scale up to be 
a serious way of tackling the problem. You yeah. definitely need new technology. It needs to, you know, two things. It needs to look better and needs to be yeah. an order of magnitude cheaper. Um, and that's the, the motivation for, for, for moving to this sliding lens uh, technology. Um, and, you know, but, you know, the other thing is you want to make sure that it's very simple to deploy, it's very simple to use, and right. so we're, we're, we're doing all sorts to do that. So, for example, one of the things that's very important is recording data, right. uh, getting data back from the field, and we, we've had paper-based records, and, and they're, you know, a little flaky. So what we've <laughs> implemented recently, we've got an, uh, we're working on an SMS text-based uh -huh. data system where people right. can just, when yeah, they dispense sure. a pair of glasses, they'll just be able to SMS text the details sure. in and it'll ultimately get loaded into a database. Uh, that hasn't been rolled out yet. That's still, still being developed. Um, and well, the thing I'm really excited about, I guess, is, is once these things are rolling off and, and, and they're low cost, then, then we can seriously explore some new models for how you use them, sort of, sort of, those based on, say, uh, you know, local entrepreneurs uh -huh, and, and, uh -huh. and that sort of yeah. approach. And even then, there's sort of, sort of different ways in which you could do that. You can have one where people just try to you know, fit people and directly sell them, or alternatively, um, there's a group in Liberia where they're, they're proposing a study in which people pay a very small amount for a very crude screening, uh, and then, if necessary, the glasses are then provided at very low cost. Mm -hmm. okay. um, yeah, so that's, that's basically it. <laughs> now let's get into monitoring and evaluation, because obviously we're all dealing with um, aspects that are very difficult to quantify in terms of the impact. So how do you uh, actually monitor the, or let's just say, how do you know that what you're doing is having an impact on, on people? And, and, uh, and um, Deborah, again, how, how, do you, how do you grab it? Is this really having a change, this, the design tools and methods in terms of what you want to achieve? Mm -hmm. How do you go about finding that out? I think that it's, it's, it's evolving, and I think that one of the hard things for like being honest is for the design industry is to measure the impact of the work within these environments and I think quite a lot of the time people would say it feels better it, it, and it looks better and the experience is better but they're quite intangible things to actually measure um, and then in other cases we can then clearly see that actually there has been st um, sure. um, time saved for staffs like um, for staffs more time for patients or in terms of actually waiting times for patients have, have, have gone down. Um, but we tend to kind of work in <coughs> partnership with outside organisations to help make sure that that's independent. Um, and I think our kind of interest really is around looking at, I guess, social return on investment. And I'm personally interested in actually how money is spent in public sector and actually if you spend the money on this kind of project what is the return on that and actually how is the impact how do you get the money to the people that really can make the difference mm -hmm. um and so very much around like some of our other projects are actually working for organizations to identify frontline staff or people in the community who actually if you give them 20 grand, that will actually transform their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, you can measure the impact of that much greater than if you spend 20 grand on a service improvement. Yeah, right. Um, and so I think that's when you start to use money in different, more resourceful ways, you can actually start to see a bigger impact and a bigger mm -hmm. shift change. Mm -hmm. Where do you get your funding from? Um, a range of places. So we're funded um, 
initially when I started the business, I was funded by um, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and Art, Nesta. so Nesta. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gave me, as an entrepreneur, the kind of backing to say, okay, I've got this idea around improving healthcare experiences for patients using design approaches. Um, and it gave me a bit of, wheel- like, I guess, space to develop how I was going to do that. But I was really keen that it became a business and it wasn't something that relied on grants or loans. Um, and so we operate as a commercial business and we get paid directly by um, people like the Department of Health, charities like the Alzheimer's Society. Um, and so with, with all of the money that we're getting given, it's actually we really need to demonstrate right. that value, particularly right now. Uh-huh. 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 How about you? How do you... Well, by developing or in developing new and innovative <laughs> services, the key element, and you alluded to it earlier, is, is it clinically effective? And that is maintained in uh, a venturing approach. So uh, in our pilot phase, uh, we test two things. We test, is it a clinically effective intervention? Do stakeholders, patients, clinicians, etc., like it? And does it deliver the outcomes that you would expect? Uh, but this, that, that is not sufficient. We've done that for many years. We've developed new care pathways and new methodologies, which clinically are fantastic, only to find that when the grant funding dries up, uh, there's nobody mm-hmm. who will then mainstream it, as, it's, um, as it were, and, and it'll fizzle out. So the second part that we do in our pilot phase is to deliver, sorry, to develop a delivery mechanism, mm-hmm. a way of sustaining that in what is an emerging market economy in the UK healthcare system. So two aspects are crucial for that. Can you design an effective operation that is able to deliver those services in a way that plugs into the existing infrastructure? Uh, and can you get customers to buy? As I said, there is an emerging market um, the, uh, currently, that is very much driven by uh, the push side. The supply is limited. Exactly. We have big hospitals. Exactly. We have some private providers. And we have a very big public, public sector provision, which is being stimulated to change. But there's very little alternative provision. So for us, it's important to plug into that market and to provide services that people will buy. And that means you have to express that in the terminology that those who are buying those services understand, which is money. So for us, success is partly, is it an effective service, um, that, that is uh, uh, clinically sound and delivers outcomes, but also will it sustain itself by getting customers. Successful ventures for us, projected over two years, is either a substantive uh, customer contract from a primary care trust or another uh, local authority perhaps, who will sustain that business so those things that we've developed are actually going to happen rather than just fizzle out, uh, or indeed a large-scale funder, as I alluded to earlier. So the ventures that you've... In other words, the thing that strikes me about the way um, you're going about things is how do you know there will be a demand? Do you, do, do you require that these ventures do a market test to assess whether there's going to be an interest in what is being offered? Yes, we do. We've obviously got a screen before we make an investment, uh, and then there are three phases, small-scale investment to develop a proof of concept, which would do some of that initial due diligence and market testing. Uh, But often you don't get the answers from that. You get an appetite, you get an idea that this Mm -hmm. might work and would have sufficient uh, innovation as well as uh, traction going forward. Uh, But then the pilot phase is crucial to try and bottom that out. Some programs we we stop because, A, uh, it might not deliver the outcomes that we want, uh, or indeed, it is just not that we're not able to put that into a, a venture form. It's important to say, of course, that we operate in a niche that is only part of the innovation landscape in the NHS. I'm not suggesting this is the way yeah, to transform, exactly, uh, exactly. despite our grandiose sort of uh, uh, subtitle. <laughs> um, but it is a niche that is important in order to, to create new space in which people can gather to develop new things that then need to sustain themselves. 
So to degree the financial viability of a service, can it be delivered at a price point that customers would buy? And I know this is alien language to a degree in the public sector, but it is emerging. It is a way of stimulating that innovative change, not to make lots of money, but to make sure that those things that we think are important will happen rather than will will fizzle out because of uh, other interests. The the thing I wanted to just briefly mention is, uh, and and Deborah mentioned it, is social return on investment. It's a key developing area where we try and express financially benefits that are not normally part of a a profit and loss balance of a company. So to a degree, you need to make sure you create a venture that, even not for profit, is sustainable, so the money coming in is the money going out. But you also need to try and express financially the values that you would want to sell to a potential purchaser in health or social care. Um, and that means trying to find what are called proxies for um, uh, things such as resilience or independence or weight loss. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is very difficult. It's often uh, being looked at rather scathingly. This is sort of trying to do something, fit, fit uh, non-financial measures into a financial model. But unless we do yeah, that, we will exactly. never be able to persuade mainstream finance Absolutely. to invest in those uh, innovations that are going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. It's difficult, but it's very important. Now, the... the, the the first, when I met you, I remember being part of, it was a very interesting meeting that was called by Novartis, in fact, um, in London. And I felt I'd stepped on into another planet, in fact, because the discussion was, and, and I hope you will sort of share a little bit and I'll expose my ignorance here, but the discussion was on a new policy within the NHS about, if I understood this correctly, People within NHS can spin out new ventures or, I mean, you can be a public servant in the NHS and say all of a sudden, you know, I think I want to spin off a new venture and I'm going to go, what's the the name of this? There's a term for this. There is something called right to request. That's it, right to request. I thought that's the strangest thing I've ever heard because it's like how do you turn a silk purse from a sousier or whatever? I mean, not that public health doctors are sousiers, but the point is how do you you turn these people into entrepreneurs because that's really what's what's being requested here, right, if I understand correctly? It it, it is to a degree. There's a whole sort of host of issues around can you do that and are people born entrepreneurs or can you make them? But there's at least some support that you could give for those who are uh, budding entrepreneurs to sort of flourish. I, I think, uh, not to dwell on it, but the, the idea is that public sector provision is perhaps no longer fit for purpose in the way, and that, that is not just in the UK, certainly not just in health. Yeah. It's perhaps a global phenomenon, and that you might uh, be able to drive social entrepreneurship to deliver a lot of those services that are currently delivered through public sector organisations. That is part of the transformation of the NHS with a market economy mm-hmm. emerging, and that requires... Uh, the, at least the ability for certain services to say, I, I know I do this well, and I do it within the current sort of framework of NHS organization. If I was able to do this work in, a, in, a, in an organizational form that enables me to develop other things that are not necessarily part of my employer's interest, would, n- would nevertheless really benefit society as a whole, <coughs> deliver those services to industry or local authorities or other stakeholders, um, in other words, liberate to a degree my work because I'm constrained by my sort of fairly narrow mm-hmm. sector focus. Um, it is an opportunity to do that. Yeah. It is not for everybody. Uh, yeah. I think it is quite clunky still at this stage. Yeah. There is some money available for it, and there are people like ourselves and others who help uh, find your way through that. It is not a panacea for transforming no, no, public services, but certain aspects of it might just find themselves in niche that is much bigger than the constraints that were in before. Interesting. And now we go internationally, monitoring and evaluation. Andrea, before we came in here, you told me how 
you had had a discussion with a leading international health figure who told you that you could not claim as Writers for Health mm. to be having any impact on health. Mm. So <clears throat> how do you go about this? <laughs> yeah, monitoring and evaluation turns out to be um, a real challenge, of course, for everybody. And, and the gentleman that, that, that Pamela refers to that Barry and I met with last week at the uh, School of uh, Tropical Medicine in London um, is, a, is a, as, as, as Tulsi earlier um, explained, he is a purist, and, and it's very difficult for anybody to claim any success in medical innovation or intervention, um, even if you're doing something that is plainly um, directly medical, let alone something that is a, a motorcycle delivering a woman to a, health, a clinic for, you know, testing for HIV or TB or whatever it is. But nevertheless, um, we have evidence. Let me give you an example. In an area called Binga District in, in Zimbabwe, very close to the Kariba Dam, it's very hot, very 100,000 people living in the most awful conditions spread out over 400,000 miles. It's huge uh, square miles. It's huge area. Um, people were simply not seeing their seeing the health worker. They didn't even know they had a health worker. And they were dying of malaria and diarrhea and uh, cholera and bubonic plague and uh, you name it. But uh, we, they had 16 health workers in that area who were trying, doing their best, to walk out to their rural communities. They were doing their, they were trying their hardest, but they couldn't get there. But we made sure that they each had a motorcycle, that they were highly trained, that they were able to ride out to their rural communities and malaria dropped by 20% we did a control study in the province next door it went up in that time by 15% so we knew that people were had, were not dying I mean the hospitals knew everybody knew and the difference between not getting health care and getting health care is plainly going to make a difference but everybody said, mm, well, you can't really claim that, you know, it could be something else. And, but nevertheless, um, we, are, we, we are thrilled at the moment to have a, a grant from, from the Gates Foundation because they think this is very, very important to be able to get health care to people. So they want to be able to claim with some um, uh, acknowledged independent and, and, and somebody who really knows what they're talking about to do a study and to say this it says here it's not Andrea and Barry saying this it says here on this piece of paper from Stanford or Harvard or whatever it is that this really Oxford, Oxford yes Oxford um, <laughs> um, uh, really makes a difference and so we we are looking at ways examining ways uh, of finding out how you can claim that this makes a difference. And, and it's a big challenge uh, because you go from the purist that, that we met last week to people who say, well, of course it makes a difference. We can tell it makes a difference. It's, it's, it's absolutely plain. So, but people need to know that your intervention actually has an impact. And we could say, well, there are these 
50 vehicles and they used not to work and now they do work. And we could claim that and then everybody would agree. But it is a big challenge and it will become more and more of a challenge because when people are spending money, they want to be able to say to their board, to their donors, to whoever it is, this makes a difference. And we can tell you this because it says so on this bit of paper. And, and so it's a challenge for all of us, but monitoring evaluation is going to be more and more and more and more demanded and more and more and more demanding. And, and so I, I think it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's very tricky, but we're in it, and we're going to find a way of showing that motorcycles and vehicles taking people to hospital and getting health care really do make a difference. But it's a challenge. And I almost hesitate to ask you that question because you haven't really actually gone out into the field to see whether... You're going to well, yeah, this, this is the, it's, it's, it's a subtle problem, actually. I mean, we, you do basic things in the field we've done, which is a very simple way you measure, you know, um, visual acuity, so how well you can see before, how well you can see after, you know, people get a pair of glasses. But, of course, that's far from complete. You right. know, you need to, 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 to follow up and, and check that uh, people still use the glasses, people are happy with the glasses, that the glasses are proving durable. And uh, this side of things is, yeah, is, 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 is what we're looking at developing now as, 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 as we go forward. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's subtle because the other, the other trouble is you've got to make sure that people write down all the numbers properly and this sort of thing. This is what's motivated coming up with this SOS text because you know, it's quite, I suppose it's quite a nice one, because well, it, it is quantifiable in that way, you know. It's, it's, Generating meaningful statistics is is is, yeah. is fairly straightforward. Sounds like you need riders for health to help you distribute. <laughs> I was going to talk to these guys at the end. Good to get there. You, you, you know, I I'd like to um, take this to a different a different level because I always find these discussions. You know, you you sort of talk about what you do and the innovation, et cetera. But tell us a little bit about each one of you. What is your passion? What drives you in this field? And and um, Maybe a little bit about the screw-ups, you know, what, you, what have you learned from some of the setbacks and the failures um, in terms of how you're, how you're progressing or doing better? So something about yourself, your passion, and, and something about your screw-ups. And, and you know. Andrea, do you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, I think that when... A, a, bit, a little bit about uh, myself, and I'd like to say a little bit about Barry too, because we are, um, you know, we're joint founders, and you know, we 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 realise actually that we look around actually the social enterprise um, family, as it were, uh, and and see that so many people are are either you know husband and wife or uh, two men working together or two women and, and and actually it's because there are so many facets to any business um and especially one that works overseas that you really have to focus your attention on what you're really good at but we realize barry and i realized that we couldn't have done this without the skills of the other person um my background is motorcycle motorcycling i used to be a motorcycle racer and so i know about motorcycles and uh, Barry was a journalist and, and, a, and a lawyer and I think really what made us do what we do is that we looked at um, the issue, we saw what was happening, that vehicles weren't working people were dying and they were, had, were com uh, completely related to one another, those issues and we knew we could change it 
And I think that what made us do it was because we found that unreasonable. We thought it was, it made us angry. And that was 20 years ago, and we're still angry. So, um, I mean, we really kind of get out of bed in the morning furious about not being able to sort of change, as they call it, the status quo, and to raise the issue. You know, ministries of health and NGOs put transportation right at the bottom of their budget if they put it on at all. And they buy all these vehicles and they shove them into the programme and the programme fails because of the transportation. But they don't learn from that and say, hmm, maybe that should be higher up the budget uh, line. Maybe it should have be on third or something. They just keep on making the mistake. So that's other people's mistake. And now I'll talk about some of our own. Um, I think that we didn't think about succession and what happens when people founders of an organization start to you know get too tired or too you know disappointed or too furious for their own good um but because succession takes such a long time it's not something you do like that and it's yeah it's all done or we get put this new person in it takes a long time and i think that's one uh, i mean we're on it now and um but it's taking a long time to do, um, and, but that's okay. Uh, but I think, it, I think anybody starting anything should think about succession and not just them as individuals, but what happens uh, down the line. And, and I think from, from other points of view, you have to know more about money when you start anything. I mean, we, we started not being business people, and anybody who has a business background has a real advantage. And, and to think about, I mean, I know now things about, because we've worked on the loan with GT Bank and with the Skoll Foundation, I know things about money I never thought I'd know. I know things about banking I never thought I'd know. But, and, and so anybody with a business background has a huge advantage. But we've had to do it the other way around. We came along with the passion and the problem and a solution, and then we learned about money. And of course you can do it that way around, but um, it's, very, it's very useful to know that. And I, I think that if I were going to say that it's not a mistake as such. It's just unfortunate that we didn't have a stronger business background. No, maybe if you a, did, you would have never done this. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but you've also got to have a real appetite for risk. And, uh, you know, uh, and we think of ourselves as a risk management organization much more than a business, in a sense, because you, mm -hmm. you have to be able to take, take risks. Um, I may be flattering myself. I'm just trying to think of you know uh, things that we've really messed up and I know we have but I'm just trying to think what they are could you if I come up with something I'll I'll tell you uh, because I, I know there is a list but I conveniently you know blotted them out David how about you oh uh, so this is about me and my screw ups yeah <laughs> go for it <laughs> okay um, well my background is is in atomic physics um, and as of a couple of years ago I found myself as a, a, an expert on the precision spectroscopy of highly ionized atoms. Could you say that um, again? Boring stuff. Um, no, it's quite interesting, but I, I became a bit jaded. I, I became very concerned, actually, that I was becoming useless. And um, in a place like Oxford, it's very easy to happen. And, and, highly qualified, but it's, it's really, <laughs> um, and, and, and I was 
a serious point. Um, is is I, I was you know, you know do this work. Yeah, found it interesting, but I sort of come to the end of a series of experiments and a series of work, uh, and really taking the technique as far as it could go without you know a huge new effort. And, and I just became a bit concerned that I was too busy trying to measure things, fundamental effects in physics that really weren't going to be wrong. And, and, and I, I didn't want to be useless. I wanted to do something useful. And, and because I'd always been associated with so, so this this concept was originally that of uh, a chap called uh, Josh Silver, mm-hmm. Professor Silver, who's a professor in the university here. And um, it's been sort of bumbling on for a few years, but I could see an opportunity to to, to uh, really crack it along a bit because I, I, I know a bit about optics. Um, that's why I decided to to, to move. Um, Sideways and and and, and get, get get involved in in these self-adjustable glasses. And so the goal here is, is this is all part of uh, Dave's not being useless quarter-life crisis. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, no, seriously. And this, this is and um, well, in terms of, of mistakes uh, recently, uh, uh, is it, I don't know. I, I suppose what we've learned a lot about is. Getting things made in China is far from straightforward. Um, they have a. It, it's, it's, it's frustrating because if you find something, because you assume it's going to be cheap, you get the cost, but, but it's actually very subtle. Um, the, the, there's definitely a culture of sort of information restriction. Um, you, you get told things like, you know, you phone up, say, say so let me give you an example. So on, on this prototype, we wanted to have some acrylic extruded parts made, so made out of acrylic plastic and some parts which are sort of simple extrusions. Um, we got quotes, we, we, we put in an order, we gave instructions, made sure that, that you know, it was, it was a simple description as well, so this isn't a language barrier. And then we, we paid in advance, uh, and then we get nothing, and then we contact them and we ask, uh, how's the parts coming along? You get told, oh yeah, yeah, we, we've just shipped out the parts. You say, well, can we have the tracking number? Oh yeah, yeah, I'll give you tracking number tomorrow. And then two days go by and he contacts again and they say oh yeah, yeah we're just about to ship out the parts <laughs> and seriously this has happened and they go alright and then a week goes by and he contacts again yeah we're just making the parts now and in the end what we got through was a bag of aluminium not acrylic parts which were made to the wrong dimensions um, late and, and yeah so that, that was that's educational because you, 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 there's definitely I, I wish there was something in between the British Approach which you often get, which is sort of it's gonna cost you, you know, ask anything, you just costly. Uh, and, and, and the Chinese approach, which is yes, we can do, even when quite possibly they can't. And it, you know, it's okay to say no, we can't do that and, and, and move on. And I, the, the, so that's that's been very educational. I mean, not all British approaches are like that, of course, not all Chinese approaches right. are, are like that. This is just what we've what we've learned. So, so for example, the the moulding company we're working with on, on moulding these new lenses, they're they're, they're a British company based um, in Worcester, and they're great. They're, 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 they've been really great. They're, they've been really understanding. Um, they're doing it all for, for for very low cost. So I'm very happy with that. Um, but that, that's so that yeah so so certainly mistakes have been made um, made there yeah. <laughs> Deborah um, about me um, so my background was in advertising and I worked in advertising for a bit and um, felt that I didn't want to be creating di- direct mail that came through people's letterboxes which I didn't want and I always wanted to do something social so I actually went back to study um, an MA in communications and whilst doing that. 
found a leaflet on the table one day and I ended up volunteering at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital as um, a project manager um, developing a touchscreen information system there. And um, just being in the environment, I loved it. I was there for nine months and whilst I was there, I just started to see these massive like changes that I could make through using really simple, small pieces of design. Um, and so I got more volunteers involved throughout the hospital, creating different improvements. Um, and then I got to the end of my MA, and I actually needed to earn some money. Um, and so I said, will you give me a job? And they were like, well, we don't employ designers in hospitals. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, and then I was 23 at the time, and I went on to start a business. And I think I started the business on a probably a big dose of naivety. Um, and kind of, okay, I'm a designer, um, and I can go into the public sector and sell design. And um, luckily, I was funded um, to give me a bit of space to do that. And I think that I was really fortunate to meet some people in the healthcare sector that took the risk yeah. and took the risk with me. Um, and you know, I was wackily you know dress really strange funny haircut um but the passion came through yeah. and the vision came through of what i really believed um, we could achieve and um i think it was really exciting to then see once we'd done one project that then kind of just started to roll and it's kind of gone from there and i think like in how many years ago was this uh, that was in 2004 uh -huh. um and so like as a company now we've kind of grown and um there's um 11 of us and um, so it's really exciting to see actually how things could grow in that stage, just starting in health initially, but now then expanding out to local authorities, charities and education. Um, and just seeing now that actually the role's reversed and actually now we're helping people to start their businesses too. So yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the, I guess, in terms of mess-ups and screw-ups, and I think that part of our process in terms of design process is to create prototypes and to make mistakes mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of I think when we've learnt the most is when we've made a mistake and someone's told us that we've made a mistake because I think there's this kind of strange culture where people don't like to necessarily give you direct feedback mm -hmm. um, and actually we need direct feedback in order to improve um, and so the prototyping process for us is a great way for people to go that's rubbish and uh, that's oh. never going to work um, and so for us that, that works really well um, and I think it's really funny what you were saying about like, the business side and the money side of things it's like um, I've got a new accountant and she was looking at how I've grown the business like financially and stuff and she was like this is textbook and I was like really? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, really I, was, I was just, yeah. doing, just doing my job doing mm. good work and the money flowed from there and I think that that's what I think social entrepreneurs are really good at. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, my, story, my story, I started like, no, I didn't start my life, I started my professional life as a clinician, physiotherapist, trained in Holland and came to the UK to, uh, to do my professional career um, and developed that. Um, and then you have a choice, really. You either become, um, uh, you go into teaching and, and research, uh, or you go into management, or you go into private practice. I did a bit of the, the latter two, some private practice, and some management in the NHS, um, and, and frankly, became somewhat frustrated. I think management in the NHS, and I'm clearly sort of simplifying <coughs> this, is, is often to do with administration rather than vision and drive and, uh, and, and, and trying to change things. My opportunity came really when uh, the, uh, one of the nine NHS innovation hubs to do with uh, commercialising and, and exploiting, in a good sense, intellectual property for the, uh, for the NHS uh, set up, the one in my region, east of England, Cambridge-based, um, wanted to develop something for service innovation 
And suddenly, on a daily basis, I spoke to clinicians or service managers who had their day job and they treated their patients passionately and they delivered their services as part of the organisation, but they had this real idea that they would want to bring to fruition. So I was very fortunate that on a daily basis I spoke to people who said, what if we could do something that was different Mm. in my trade, in my field, but delivered in a way that could be so much better? Uh, So I did some work there, and that was a stepping stone for Health Launchpad, which is the investment fund I I now uh, work in. Um, currently working with a, a fascinating team of some health professionals, but some people that mm. know about business, which is not really, not really my expertise. Some who know about finance and, 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 and uh, evaluation, etc. So a really uh, uh, varied team. Uh, fascinated by uh, working with partners who want to do some th- things differently and having, to a degree, an answer for them, uh, an opportunity to see whether that could be put into, into practice. Um, and, and fascinated to... Um, not raw, but borrow from Peter to pay Paul. And by that I mean use business expertise, mouse, rigor about you know, setting something up that needs to survive. So no, no point in doing something fanciful that won't be there tomorrow. Uh, but yet doing that with a purpose to change things, to make things better, uh, and to, uh, to make a difference. So that whole social innovation um, um, search, really, um, that is currently happening. It's, mm-hmm. it's exciting to be part of that. Um, cock-ups, occasionally far too optimistic, which is good, I guess, but uh, can be seen as naive if you stick with something too long, so not soon enough saying this is either not a good idea or not, not the right environment or we don't have the money, so exiting early, I think, is, uh, is, is, is wise. Uh, sometimes naive about uh, partners' objectives. Sometimes uh, you know, what they want out of you is not the same as what you think you get out of a partnership. Um, uh, part of really experimenting in a field that is new but on the whole, uh, a really fascinating change. It, glad, actually, I forgot not to make the choice at that earlier stage to become a professional sailor, uh, which would have been very <laughs> exciting, but ultimately not as satisfying. Wow. So let's hear from all of you. Questions, insights, <coughs> passions, um, failures. Lara. Um, so sitting in on a lot of these innovation talks about healthcare, a lot of people have talked about um, you know, bureaucracy and the way medicine is taught, et cetera. And um, my background is a little bit of the naive business starting with um, social benefit focus, knowing nothing about money, through which I backed into health because of an anger issue, um, quality to healthcare, which then backed me to business because I need to know about money. So um, having touched on a lot of these things, I mean, the idea of innovation is really interesting to me within the healthcare setting because I think a lot of what needs to change is this bureaucracy and this method of teaching and this God complex, et cetera. At the same time, I mean, I'm American, we're the worst at this, but um, at the same time, I feel like in healthcare, unlike in other fields, there's value to that and there's value to that for the patient. Um, the doctor's certainty, the doctor's, um, you know, the fact that the patient isn't going into a surgical consultation with the doctor saying, you know, well, what do you think? Um, at times, can be very comforting to the patient. Um, and so I'm wondering if you guys could speak a little bit to that dynamic, which I find fairly unique to um, a healthcare setting as opposed to a business setting, et cetera, where I think this grassroots flow of information and this grassroots modification of process and communication is really important because all the doctors have been through the same system and all the managers have been through a similar but um, slightly different system than the doctors, and they're the ones dictating a lot of that. This grassroots approach is really important, but at the same time, I think it's limited in this sector. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to that tension of how the doctor needs to stay somewhat above or somewhat separate um, in terms of information flow. 
because I see that as, it makes it difficult. The environment of innovation is so important, and empowering patients to know the language of what they're talking about, mm -hmm. and all of that is so important. At the same time, building a system in which they feel like they have input on the whole process seems somewhat crippling, and at times I feel that would be a disservice to the patient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, very, yeah. Gets back to that first question of disempowerment. Any one of you want to jump in? Um, should I answer? Um, I think there's kind of, it's interesting that, because I think there's certain things where there's an expectation that your doctor will be the person with the knowledge, but then there are so many now, so many opportunities for kind of peer-to-peer -peer networks and expert, like expert patients to become that knowledge um, around living with the condition. So I think that it's, it's looking at the looking at the health service and looking at the different interactions of where it's possible for actually the lived experience of the patient to actually replace the knowledge of the doctor. Um, and but it's also I guess it, what we see quite a lot through I guess the co-design process and getting people to come up with ideas and take ownership of those ideas is some of those things actually you don't want to have control over. So, say for example, um, a bus service, you want the bus to just turn up and take you to your destination. You don't necessarily want to kind of co-design it every time you get on there. But there might be other, in other examples where actually you do want more control over your health and over your say. So I think it's just about mapping what those opportunities are. And I think where, and looking what the role of the expert is within that. Um, and I think that one of the challenges that we face obviously quite a lot within our approach is actually how do you create a neutral environment where healthcare professionals and patients can be equal um, and I guess that's why we use the word experience because you have an experience as a doctor and you have an experience as a patient you have an experience as a carer and that experience is valid to yourself and actually no one could say that isn't your experience so mm -hmm. if you, you're the owner of that then that's the, that's the neutral space where we aim to start most of our conversations um, from and so I think it's an interesting challenge and I think there's lots of opportunities within all of that is there anybody here who's a medical doctor? One, two, three. Can you give some insight into Lara's question? Sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Can you can you sort of frame? Can you phrase it. Yeah. Sorry, I was a little rambling. Um, essentially, I think the the idea of innovation, the idea of getting patients to have insight into their care, into remodeling their care, et cetera, is really important, and empowering patients to do that is very important. But I also think uh, the authority of the doctor, um, which can cripple that innovation, does carry value to some patients. And so I'm wondering about, in this space, how innovation should work. Because I think it's it's difficult when that authority does confer some patient comfort. <coughs> I think there's definitely been a change over the years in the relationship between doctor and patient, mainly with the internet, uh, with the access that patients have to high-quality evidence-based well, it hasn't been uniform across different medical specialities. So, when I worked on cancer medicine, for example, it was much more common than to be coming with information about their condition. And you did feel that the patient had more power because of that. Whereas in what's called acute medicine, which is an older population where people are much more acutely, they're not going to be able to You have basically the authority. So, I don't think it's something you can generalize over all medical specialities. Mm -hmm. um, I think, in general principle, the more patients know, it's better for the patient. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do either of you have insights into this? 
think uh, it's extremely important to see the cultural differences. And um, uh, what, what we're discussing here is really the situation now in developed countries where patients do have access to internet and the culture is really the, the more informed the patients are the better. Mm -hmm. But if we take that at the global level, I mean, the situation is totally exactly. different. In some of the countries, in developing countries, for instance, there is still a very, you know, a paternalistic approach, exactly. but it's actually well received by the patient. That's right. So I don't think we can generalize within specialities or within countries or within cultures. And I think it's important to actually innovate, but really um, looking into the culture as how to implement and roll out whatever innovation you come up with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very important point. Yeah. Do you have any? No. no? I agree. Okay. Well, oh, sorry. Right. I was just going to say, I come at what you're saying from a slightly different angle. Um, because in a lot of developing countries, you're actually working with con conflicting frameworks. So it might be, I agree what, with what you're saying about medical authority, but um, as we were discussing earlier, it's not good enough to have the healthcare in place or the system in place if people can't access it. And if people can access it, it doesn't always mean that they're going to access it. So I work a lot with treatment seeking behavior. And um, for example, I work with the National Clubfoot Program in Malawi. And there, you know, biomedically, clubfoot is a very well-defined physical impairment. But to the mothers of the patients I work with, it's anything but clearly defined. Mm -hmm. It's to do with witchcraft or cursing or the will of God. And until you find ways to actually incorporate those perceptions and experiences <coughs> of your patient base, back into your health policy and programming, any, any health intervention right. isn't going to be maximized. Right, very, very important. Yes. Oh, sorry. Two things I'd like to say to Lara. There's a very good book. It's about, obviously, um, medicine in the UK by Raymond Tallis called Hippocratic Oaths. It's looking up, obviously, the move from journalism to partnership model. It's, it's kind of a uh -huh. good dream. Okay. The question I've got for Deborah and for Duke is that we, we've heard from John Bell this morning that three things that stifle innovation, particularly in the UK, is the structures we have, the professions, and finances. Do you think that we actually need a fundamental change in terms of actually how we fund healthcare in this country and actually the sort of the government intervention so that if you have potentially a two-tier system that people might be thinking, those who can afford to pay for basic services or yeah. tiers above would, mm -hmm. so you're creating a market for more right. entrepreneurship to happen, but that as a society we don't let people fall through the net. That actually, are, the, the way that actually we, we manage all of this is so badly done. Because the thing that disappointed me yesterday, listening to the Institute of Innovation, is they had so few things that they could say they did that got rolled out. So that you actually take costs out of the system. I mean, <coughs> somebody in one hospital do something different than one ward is ridiculous. We've got to think, you know, large scale. Exactly. And so many things in the NHS, you have innovation. It only happens in That's a small right. way. It stops. It's not evaluated funding ends, it's a mm -hmm. waste of money. Mm -hmm. So could, could, how do we need to do something totally different? You know? Gosh, huge topic, <laughs> uh, which, which I, I'll, I'll sidestep. <laughs> I'll, I'll sidestep mostly. The, the two things that are important, I think, is um, to create a spectrum of providers rather than the, the fairly sort of restricted system we work in at the moment, whether that is two-tier or safety net or um, um, a public-private partnership or third sector provision, I, I don't know, probably a bit of all of that really, but a, a spectrum of supply so that choices can be made by patients, by clinicians, by purchasers, by commissioners. I think that's, that's, that's key, and we're working towards that. 
uh, with support to stimulate those areas of the market that currently don't, don't exist. Um, the other, and this is not a political comment at all, but is, is to try and depoliticize some of this to a degree. Other sectors operate very effectively with regulation without um, you know, this huge politicized um, um, uh, ping pong ball effect that we, uh, that we seem to have. It, that may be naive again, it may be that we can't get there, but um, if we could depoliticize this to a degree and just find solutions that work um, and fund those that, that are effective. Um, um, so if you look at insurance industry, etc., you know, clearly regulated needs to be right, but operates independently and does that very, very well. And I don't mean privately, I mean independently. And uh, So it's that sort of model that, that I think would help us uh, make a transformation. I wonder if there's any country that's depoliticized health. To me, health has always been so political. You know, I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. As, I don't know. Yes. I, I really want to say, in all these discussions, I can't kind of mention when people talk about the NHS that it's one organisation. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. Yeah. And politics are otherwise, the structures change on a regular basis. Um, and one of the reasons why this group, I think, has not only achievements in this school or this hospital is because each hospital, each area has its own culture, its own structure, mm-hmm. and that's the best they can do. Adoption of ideas is a huge issue. No, yeah, I was just going to say in answer to your, you know, wondering about politicisation. We we work at one of the countries in which we work is Zimbabwe, and we found actually curiously that Zimbabwe's Ministry of Health is is very <coughs> unpolitical. It, it, quite interesting actually, and 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 very good to work with. Mm-hmm. Great, Tusi, you had a question. Uh, I just, just an observation uh, in, uh, about why on innovations. I think most innovations uh, happen out of uh, passion, like someone said, uh, naivety as well. Uh, and I think most of the innovators tend to look at that as I've done my job. And I think what's probably lacking is that I think for any innovation to scale, uh, it requires to transcend that. Yeah. You have to convert passion into a process and a system. No, and I think that requires a completely different way of uh, thinking and uh, probably uh, different structures and different uh, financial uh, support or incentives. Uh, so I, I don't think we have, we have explored that mm. in, in, in great depth. Mm. You know, we have applauded uh, good innovation and good inventions. Right. 
and if it's a good publication or whatever, and it kind mm -hmm. of ends there, everybody feels the job is done. Mm -hmm. So part of the problem could be could be there. That's very interesting because when you look at the um, history of Aravind, where you had Dr. V come in with sort of the vision for what he wanted to do, you know, basically taking the McDonald's model, um, and then how, you know, now that he's no longer uh, with us, you all have taken, well, you all started to do it much more in terms of process innovation. As, as you were talking in terms of, you know, time spent on patients, I think you have it down to a science at Arab and exactly how much time, you know, uh, does it take a patient to get through the system. So you're right, and it goes back to the succession issue, which is how do you how do you recognize that what it takes to get an innovation going is quite different, or the skills that are, are, are needed there are quite different from the skills that are needed to scale it, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and egos and people are involved mm -hmm. in that, so it is difficult to make that transition. And I I, would, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, with um, Tulsi because what we are spending all our time now on it really is how you make the money work, but uh, but but those processes and Absolutely. systems and and making sure that it's deeply embedded and that they that they support innovation and continue to create innovation and not become bureaucratic and and and, and suppress. Innovation, but it, but it is crucial to have them in place. But, but even then, you have to be innovative about the systems and processes you put in place. I think, uh, you know, just uh, in, in, in reference to what you were saying uh, about your, your, your you know, um, prize-winning accounts, you know, that you, you have to do, do those things in a conventional way, but they still have to be in a, a culture that encourages innovation. And, and that, mm. I, I think, in a sense, one of the advantages that we had that, that you didn't have was that we didn't know anything. I mean, we didn't, ha we didn't have the background you had and the understanding of your environment, whereas we came at this mm. completely... <coughs> Fresh with that naivety that that you were mentioning, um, but 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 at the same time that enables you to think newly mm. all the time. Mm -hmm. You don't have models of right. how you're going to do it. So we had a great benefit in that case. In, it, on the other hand, as with all strengths, it's a weakness because you really don't know how to do it. So you have to invent everything. And, and we find often that we've invented all these things from first principles, business principles. Somebody comes along and says, oh, yes, oh, well, if you'd been done an MBA, you would know that. But all of a sudden you find you've done it, but invented it, or you think you've invented it yourself. Interesting, <laughs> interesting, interesting. And, and I think for me the key with working with entrepreneurs I've always found is that um, entrepreneurs have many ideas a minute and that's great in the startup phase when you mm. need a lot of flexibility and you need to know that you can go a different way to get to a goal mm. but then when you're managing lots of people having an idea a minute is really dangerous yeah, you can't. <laughs> um, and you need a, a different kind of you mm. know engine there so mm. it's it's quite interesting to see how that goes. yes that's right um, I was struck in the responses to the last question you put to the panel, panel that we've got four people here talking about entrepreneurship in the community who ended up doing what they're doing by accident. Yes, isn't it? And I think everybody here would agree that, that entrepreneurship and innovation is central to making the changes that need to happen both to develop world healthcare and developing world healthcare. And I guess the question that comes to me is, you know, we need more entrepreneurs and innovators. 
how do we do that? What's the best way for us to spend the incremental dollar? Is it to just hope that you know these four people and four other people hit the tipping point <coughs> in their lives and we give them a nice slippery slide to help them develop their, their innovations? Mm. Or is it training? Is it something else? You know, maybe the Scholar Centre, that's something that you guys look at. I'd to hear particularly your comments, panel. I'm a really bad person to ask this because, in fact, I think that most entrepreneurs never end up in business school. There are a few that do, and we encourage that. Um, but uh, I think that what we need to do is to encourage more people to think as well entrepreneurially, meaning most of our MBAs will go and join companies or organizations that are already existing, and they will uh, – we want – them to, we want to encourage them to think innovatively within those systems and how do you actually act as a Trojan mouse to change the system from within. So, um, uh, as I said, most, most entrepreneurs do not go to, to, to business school and those that do usually come after they've started their ventures and they go, you know, I need an MBA, like what Laura was saying. Uh, um, I firmly believe that entrepreneurs are born that way you do not teach somebody to be an entrepreneur. That's the first really bad business mistake. However, you can learn to be an entrepreneur by being around entrepreneurs. It's almost like an infectious disease to use a metaphor. You know, if you hang enough around these people, you start to kind of see and think, And because all of us have entrepreneurial qualities, mm -hmm. you know? It's just that are they allowed to thrive? Why is it that some cultures, entrepreneurs are like in the gene pool and other cultures, they're not. They're not there. And it's not that entrepreneurship isn't evenly distributed in the population. It's just that some cultures really allow this to thrive. Why are so many fascinating business models coming out of India or Brazil, you know, and other places like Western Europe, continental Europe, you know, in a funny way, entrepreneurship is a sign of a, of a, weak, of a weak state intervention. I mean, when you look at what's going on, I mean, this, you know, I'm just thinking aloud, but but more along those lines. Why am I here? Because I really want to change the business culture in the 21st century. That doesn't mean I want to create an alternative business school by any means. I think finance is really important. I think accounting is really important. But how those things are taught, I think, has to be changed. So, you know. The other thing I would say, I can only speak in terms of the UK, is that our education system has become so prescriptive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. More is making kids jump through hoops, mm -hmm. right or wrong answers. You know, I teach undergraduates and I'm kind of sort of appalled really at their lack of ability to think outside the box, critically uh, yeah. analyze, you know, because they come through that system of, you know, it's either A or it's B, mm. not actually it could be any combination of those things. And I think that's really disappointing because in the system, we don't give them space to actually not yeah. pull those things around yeah. about, hey, you know, yeah. it's great to kind of sort of, you know, have creative abrasion. And encouraging and encouraging people to see failure in a different way. I mean, what was it Thomas Edison said? I haven't failed. I found thirty thousand ways it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to look at it that way too. And so when you, it's really a cultural individual. It's very interesting. I think we do encourage people to think that it's the best life is one without risk. 
and, uh, you know, and I, you know, I, th- I think that people are you mean really it's not. <laughs> well, I'm being the wrong person here. Um, uh, no, I, I do think that people think that you know ironing out all the risk and sort of unknowns out of a life is really the best way of doing it. But that's not a. It's not realistic because life isn't like yeah. that, and it sh- certainly shouldn't be. But but I do. I, I certainly take your point uh, about that. But I do think that. I don't know how you encourage people to be social entrepreneurs, but I think I know how you encourage them not to be, and that is in the ways that you're saying and and, and enabling people to think that really life doesn't have risks in it and really you can't have an objective view or a different view and that it's not thought well of if you come up with with something different and you know Barry and I keep on saying that we want a t-shirt made with well we're going to do it anyway because the one thing people say to you all the time is that won't work you can't do that that's not going to work how are you going to do that you know and it's always so you meet with so many negative things and you've got to have quite a lot of strength of character I think to be able to say or maybe arrogance or stupidity. I don't know that you're going to say, well, we're going to do it anyway, whether you think we can do it or not. I, I, most of the entrepreneurs I know are slightly mad. Yeah. And, I, and actually, that is why you do not want a world full of entrepreneurs. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes uh, this thing Bill Drayton keeps saying, everyone's a change maker. I know they're not, and a let's hope not. <laughs> because we really need those people who are not change makers, who are linear thinkers, who go, you know, deep and can really see, not that entrepreneurs don't go deep, but I mean, that, that, are, that are linear thinkers and that really stick to something in a different way. So, um, you know, I just... yeah. Be slightly rebellious. I, th- exactly. I think that you you showed all the signs exactly. by being unconventional in your dress. I think that was one of the signs that you were going to be <laughs> able to challenge things. That's right. That's I right. remember once actually I was going to a really important meeting really early on, and I felt like right, I'll put a suit on, and I was like, no, 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 and I ended up wearing these spotty wellies <laughs> just to make it. I don't know. I felt safe in them. But, Did you um, get the job? I got the job. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> just goes to show. Well, the British do appreciate appreciate eccentricity. I have to say I have learned that from my year of living here. One, any last yes? I was interested in Andrea's um, comment about evaluation and um, particularly going to somebody at the London School mm. and, and saying they were very academic. Mm. I obviously can't comment on that person. I'm in the session next, next on um, evaluation. Mm. I feel very passionately about the need for evaluation. Mm. I think Culture 
that you measure your performance all the time? Uh, uh, I'll make a general comment, and, uh, and one, one within within our own organization, I think like many other things, uh, some of the things that have become part of the DNA of the organization, mm. you know, like uh, uh, evidence-based decision-making, you know, but, I mean, uh, to me it's one of the departments which does it, you know, like every employee, if they can start thinking that way, you know, so I think they tend to be much more on the uh, on the right uh, decision making. Mm. Uh, but then just going back to uh, Andrea's question uh, about how we measure, uh, I think uh, innovators, if you look at the, 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 the whole cycle of uh, any process, you know, you have uh, inputs, you have process, you have output, outcome, impact. And I don't think every innovator works across the whole spectrum. Mm. You know, somebody innovates on the input space, somebody innovates on the process space. So I think it would be a bit unfair to judge those people say that there is no link to the output. We can't link your, you know, your work to the, to the impact. I think it's a bit unfair. Uh, but I think, but, but we still require, we need to know that you're doing the right thing. Mm, exactly. Um, so I think maybe so we need to recognize what is the space that they are contributing to. Mm. And maybe ask two questions there. Now one question, is it the right thing? I mean, does it somehow logically link to the end point? Uh, and then am I doing it right? No? So the metrics, the, the, what indicators you use, I guess, would be very much context specific. Yes. But we need to be conscious that not all that we do will directly have a, like a cause and effect on the impact. Yes. No, I don't feel it unfair. And, and, and I, I, I really agree with Tulsi, and, and I, I, I definitely agree with you that what you need is um, a process that almost every, everything is monitoring evaluation, and people think of it as just the measurement of the actual outcome at the end. Have, have the, have, are there fewer people dying of malaria, or um, is the uptake of this particular drug has it increased? But I do think it's something that needs to run through the whole organisation uh, that measures every part of your process, not just the end result or whatever somebody else has selected as being your end result. Um, and, and so I think it does need to be part, as Tulsi says, of your DNA and another, you know, just as, it, as project management, your data collection, all, the, all those other processes have to be monitoring, uh, monitored and evaluated. And, and um, I, I'd be very interested, if I could, to, to ha be able to contact you later to ask you. I, I don't know what other people think about monitoring and evaluation. Well, something, something that annoys me when I see some of these things, and I don't know always, always what's done, but the, the, there's always emphasis on, on evaluation, which is great, but there's never enough emphasis on iteration as well, and, and, and iteration is a crucial part of evaluation, because you're not necessarily going to get things right the first time, you, you've, you've, got, you've got to feedback and adjust, and, and you know, I know from talking to Tulsi that, that Aravind iterated a lot of what she did. You, you monitored what was working, you, you checked, well, 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 are we getting good uptake of glasses here? No, okay, why not? Let's iterate. And, and it's, it's sort of obvious that you should do that if you're evaluating, well, why, why, why wouldn't you iterate? But it's, in terms of emphasis, I think it's important to emphasize that as well because it doesn't necessarily mean that evaluation has to be pass or fail. It's got to, obviously, evaluation's got to tell you details so that you can then iterate and refine. Now, that's something I... Mm. 
I think evaluation is essential and important, but it's also overrated. I think evaluation is sometimes used by people who don't really get it or don't want to get it. They want to buy time or want to deflect. You know, mm. um, uh, Often, uh, when you look at new services, people say, well, has there been a randomized control trial? Have we done, done a double blind? <laughs> Frankly, if one hospital somewhere is able to transform their ophthalmology services by doing things differently, and it's good enough for them, and they make business decisions based on uh, implementing that, another hospital should jolly well look at it, rather than saying, well, has there been an RTC, an RCT? Um, so, although it's important, and you can't just things willy-nilly, uh, it, it can sometimes be a disruptive factor mm. and we need to recognise that when it happens okay. and get round it uh, rather than trying to uh, persuade people otherwise. Can I briefly come back to your question around how do we create entrepreneurs I think, uh, or, 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 or stimulate that? I, I think there's not a single answer to that. I do think it has to do with uh, uh, setting examples, making those people that do entrepreneurial work visible and, and, and role models and, and um, inspirational for others. It is about creating space and support so people who don't know whether they're entrepreneurs but have an idea can find out whether they are one or they're not. And by the way, if they have a brilliant, innovative idea, uh, they, they may put that into practice even if they are not the entrepreneur. There is a role for them in an organization as a you know, clinical lead or, or, or uh, quality uh, or development, even if they're not leading that organization. So there are ways, there are ways around that. Um, and giving them different type of support in, in the way that we do. I should briefly mention social entrepreneur in residence where we place one of our team in an organization to find good ideas, good people, and get those to work. Um, 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 we, for a while, needed some capacity and help uh, to uh, assess some of those ideas and people and used a, a management consultancy agency to do that. Their answer, by and large, was great, but they're not ready. I've told them what to do, I've given them a framework, but they're not able to respond. And, and that's where it stopped. Many business support uh, agencies are at that level. They say, okay, we've given them a framework, but they're not ready. To, and many, many of them fall by the wayside. For us, that is then, so what do we do next? Because we have a partnership with organizations, that is a point which you take stock of. And then say, so how do we bridge that gap? Uh, Michael Young, the uh, social entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, uh, whose name uh, is now in the organization that I work for, um, said famously that no was to be seen as a question and not an answer. But I think that is the sort of stimulus that we should uh, bear in mind. We're in the unusual position that the moderator has left the building. I'll let so leave you to one. Without, I want to thank all the. Uh, Panelists and, and all the uh, uh, participants who kind of added a hell of a lot to the whole discussion. I think this, this discussion was very uh, insightful. You know, I think it really delved into the uh, softer aspects of innovation and, uh, and, and uh, how it happens and then what is the uh, foundation for innovation and, and scaling mm -hmm. of this. So thank you all very much. Thank you.